Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show. The Product Startup, episode 46. Stephanie Cummings and Tal Burke talk about the product design, patenting, sourcing, and manufacturing of their product, the Schlocker, a shower locker designed for anyone sharing a bathroom. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, where we talk about turning ideas into successful products step-by-step. I'm Philip Felita, and thanks for listening today. In the last episode, we talked with Johannes Roselius and Rasmus Trito about Botanium, a hydroponic system for growing herbs and chilies from seeds. So make sure that you check out episode 45 if you want to hear more about how they developed the product and brought it to market through Kickstarter. Before we get started, I wanted to talk about the annual audience survey. So last week, I launched my first annual product startup audience survey and giveaway. Here are the three reasons why you should participate if you haven't already. Number one, the prizes. One grand prize winner chosen at random will receive $250 in prizes. That includes a one-hour call with me to dive into your project and help you take more action. So that means we could talk about prototyping, sourcing, manufacturing, and design, whatever you need to help you move forward. The grand prize winner also gets the Create Your E-Commerce Master Plan course from Chloe Thomas, and you might remember her from TPS episode 22. It's a nine-part video course with a supporting workbook for each series that takes you through building your e-commerce master plan. And that means identifying the proper business structure, making sure that you're choosing the right scale of your product range, uh, differentiating your business, building a website, making sure that you're designing your business for profit and growth, and then also researching and creating your marketing plan and testing and measuring the plan to make sure that it's working. The grand prize winner also gets a $50 Amazon.com gift card from me to spend on whatever you'd like. The second reason to take the survey is that everyone who takes the survey will get a short case study from me about how I rolled it out, what worked, and what didn't. So if you're creating your own products now, you know how critical it is to get a clear picture of your target audience. Otherwise, you risk investing a lot of time and money into something that nobody wants. So take the survey and get my mini case study once I process all the data. And the third reason, if you've listened to the podcast since I started, or maybe you just joined and you're working your way through the catalog of about 40 hours of content, you know that I don't advertise on the site or the podcast. It also takes me about six to seven hours to produce each weekly episode. So if the podcast has helped you in any way and you appreciate the content on the show, please take less than 10 minutes to let me know what you'd like to see in the coming future. So just go to theproductstartup.com and click enter now. If you're a frequent listener of the show, you probably noticed that last week I pitched a different guest for this week's episode. As is typical in business, things come up last minute. The guest was not able to make this week's show. And instead, we're going to hear from Stephanie Cummings and Tal Burke to talk about their process of producing the Schlocker, a shower locker designed for anyone sharing a bathroom. So let's get started with this week's episode. Hi, Tal. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks a lot for joining me today. Hi, thank you so much for having us. 
Well, I'm really excited to have you guys on the show because you have a successful product that you're moving into retail. And I definitely want to get into that. But maybe we can start at the very beginning. And you can talk about that deep pain point, right? Because a lot of the products that we've had on the show started from entrepreneurs and product founders that had found some unmet need that wasn't being solved in the marketplace. So talk about the importance of having a lockable locker in a shower. Tal really came up with the idea, but both of us had had this problem, um, as have many of our friends and acquaintances over their lifetime. So anyone who's had to share a bathroom with other people, whether that's siblings growing up, you know, I always had to share a shower with my sister and we would argue about who was using whose shampoo and conditioner. And then during college, you had to lug your things back and forth from the shower. And even after college, post-grad, you know, living in the city, Tal had roommates, he was living with them. And um, basically, we want to jump in. Yeah, that's how I came across the idea living with siblings, sharing a common bathroom. And then during college and post-college, it came about when I was, I came home one day from work and I was in the shower and I realized my conditioner was completely gone. My razor was being used and my toothbrush was on the floor. Gross. And yeah, it was pretty disgusting. <laughs> so I, I'm like, wow, I, I need something to like, just like, I, I didn't like having a shower caddy. So it immediately just popped into my head and I came to Steph and I'm like, Steph, I had this idea. And she's like, wow, that's an awesome idea. And we ran with it. Great that you had that inspiration and you said, you know what, instead of just dealing with it, I'm going to create a solution around it because it takes so much more effort to just create the solution to that problem. How did you validate this with some of the people that you thought would best benefit from it? Well, we first, before we actually went to our friends or anybody or even family, we actually went out to the hardware store and actually bought like chicken wire and all the essentials to actually make our homemade schlocker. Yeah, so it was the beginning of a prototype. So once we had that idea kind of formulated, we went and did SurveyMonkey. And so we did some surveys through that, narrowed down our demographic. First mark we wanted to go after was college students and post-grad roommates, a younger type of customer. And we also went to bookstores that were around college universities. And we just sat and spoke to, you know, with permission of the store owners, would speak to their customers. We acted as a third-party market researcher so that they were unbiased. And we had a survey made up beforehand. So the, the questions were all consistent. And we just took the feedback that way. That's a really great approach, especially using that third-party marketer approach because we as inventors, designers can be a bit biased toward the uh, children, so to speak, that we're uh, bringing up in the world and that even can show through in some of these questions that you ask. So it's good on you guys to do it in person. I think that's probably some of the best feedback that you can get when you have valuable one-on-one -on -one conversations. Absolutely. Yeah, you get a little anecdotal feedback. You get to see the reactions. That's hugely helpful. Were you able to take some of the statements that they gave you and use that in your marketing then to say, hey, this is the problem that we're solving and you're using their language? Yeah, definitely. Just getting anecdotal feedback like, wow, if it was someone who had already graduated, I wish I had that in college. Uh, we hear that all the time. Or they say like, oh, this is great. My roommate's always using my things or I'm always having to bring certain things back and forth like a razor. And then parents who have, have small children kind of keep the razors and sharp objects away from their kids' hands. Mm, that's smart. You know, I've got a two-year-old and I wouldn't have even thought about that. Yeah. So when you were sending out these surveys through SurveyMonkey, how did you get a list if you were just a startup with uh, typically no audience, right? So with SurveyMonkey, you can pay it and they'll, they'll generate um, survey takers for you. Ah, okay. You put in your parameters, like you want answers from 
people of this demographic, this age, this location, and you can do it that way. And you just pay a certain amount and they generate the respondents for you. You mind sharing how much that initial bit of information cost you guys? About a thousand dollars, I would say. A thousand? Yeah. I I don't remember it being that high, but it was a a couple years ago that we first did it. Yeah, Yeah, fair enough. So you have to take a, a bit of a risk. And I think people in general are less inclined to pay some of that money up front because it's not something tangible, right? You said you went to the hardware store and you created a prototype. At least you got something back from that versus you're paying $1,000 to some other company to create market data. It's a tough pill for some people to swallow, but I think it's probably one of the most essential things that you did right off the bat. Yeah. And also to also have the proof that there is a market for it because to kind of spend all the money and time on designing the product and then going out there and sourcing it and actually making it, you want to kind of validate it. Yeah. Absolutely. So now that you had the market validated and you had a better feel for what people were looking for, what was your next step to maybe create a more refined prototype? Yep, exactly. Uh, So we really wanted to get a 3D print of what we were drawing and designing. And so first we went with a product designer and it was like a friend of a friend referral. He kind of freelanced these types of things and Mm -hmm. he he was helpful, but his files weren't translating properly to the different 3D print companies and manufacturers. It was a lot of back and forth. Didn't, we weren't able to get a 3D print that route. The way that we were able to get our first prototype actually was from our manufacturer who we ended up working with. They were able to take just based off of our drawings and defined measurements. They took those, they put it into a file and they actually printed the product for us, printed the prototype. And so that was hugely helpful. I don't know what, what did they charge for that? Cause the, the, the other thing is 3d printing prototypes can be really expensive. So you want to make sure that you have the right dimensions first and are really pretty solid on what you want. Yeah. And and we went from a a few different factories slash manufacturers and most of them were from overseas. And uh, for the prototype, it ranges from like, I think we got about five prototypes and they range between $250 to $1,000. That's pretty fair. You know, even when you're working with custom bent steel, like uh, I was working with a client recently and we did a baking rack that was made from restaurant grade aluminum and you know, it was probably $250 just to get the prototype done, even though you, the unit price is now closer to 17 So you'll definitely pay that premium for first off, one-off designs. Yeah, kudos on you guys to uh, getting a designer to work with. I see a lot of people dive into contacting the manufacturer directly. And I think if you don't have a design before you contact the manufacturer, you kind of beholden to their design principles. And in a way, if you don't end up staying with them, they might even, I'm not saying they would do anything with a design, but you can't exactly take the design and shop it around. Right. Well, we did shop around in, in the United States and we also had every single manufacturer that we contacted just had assigned to uh, sign an NDA for us. But we did find it very difficult with the United States because as Stephanie was saying that the the files had to make sense according mm-hmm. to their software, mm-hmm. which is why we had finally just went over overseas to kind of figure that out for us. When you were looking at costs for manufacturing it here in the States versus abroad, was there a big difference for you? I know a lot of the products that I've looked at uh, with the people I work with, there could be a 30 or 40% difference. It's pretty huge. It was huge. Yeah, it, it was pretty uh, substantial. Uh, the prices, for example, for a tooling was anywhere between a hundred thousand to one hundred eighty thousand dollars. <laughs> wow! Yeah. <laughs> yes. It was pretty intense. And then going overseas, it was ranging from like two thousand dollars to forty five thousand dollars. Right. No, absolutely. So, and especially with a plastic. If I'm correct, that uh, there's a lot of parts in your product that are plastic. 
Yes, uh, most of it's injection mold plastic, and then there are parts that we sourced from other manufacturers who already made parts. So, uh, for instance, the lock and the suction cups had already existed with other manufacturers, and we just purchased those. But the mold had three components, the door, the body, and the shelf that had to be tooled for separately. So I'm going to just add to that, especially using plastic components uh, that all need custom molds with injection molding, the upfront cost can be really high, but where you make that money back is if you've got high volume production. Exactly. And also kudos to you guys for reusing off-the-shelf components. I, th- I see that also as being a sticking point for some people. No reason to reinvent the wheel there, right? And like you said, why invent your own lock unless it's going to be a huge selling point for your product? You want something that's been tested and proven and they've driven the cost down on that to the point where it's more affordable. Of course. Right. And, and also the sourcing it, though, was definitely a headache because there's so many different manufacturers and, and suppliers that make different kinds of locks and suction cups. It took us about six months to a year just to source the locks and suction cups. So it was it's definitely time consuming. Yeah. Talk about that process a bit. Why was it so painful? Because normal people would think that, hey, you just go up to Alibaba or wherever it is and you type in your keyword and you you solicit samples from 10 different companies and you wait for them to come and then you go from there. My family actually has a background in overseas business, especially in, in China. So mm-hmm. I was put in contact with a uh, broker slash agent who knew all these suppliers and factories mm-hmm. and kind of sourced it out for me, made a whole list of who we should go with. And I actually went over there to China for about three or four weeks and traveled to about uh, 10, 13 cities in 10 days. Jeez. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty intense, and uh, I got to see their processes and, and and meet their people, meet their factory owners, and make sure that whoever we were picking was going to be a viable long-term partner. Yeah, I think that's really part of why it took so long, is it wasn't just finding the correct parts, but making sure that there weren't going to be any hiccups. You know, dealing with overseas, sometimes if you just go on Alibaba, you run the risk of not having them shipped in time or shipped too early or shipped too late to get all of the parts to come together at the right point in time and, and quality control and all that, that was really important to us. And in addition, I didn't want to have a middleman. I, I wanted to be directly sourced to the actual supplier slash manufacturer to be in full control and know what's, what was going on and to, and to know my margins. Yeah, absolutely. And you were creating relationships here. Manufacturers would take you a lot more seriously and they should take you more seriously when you're visiting there in person because those interpersonal relationships, especially abroad, are super important. Exactly. No, that's great. To pick up your story where we left off, you said that you had the manufacturer create a prototype for you. Now, was this manufacturer that you ended up using for your final run, are they the, I guess, the final manufacturer that takes all of the other OEM components and assembles your final product and packages it for you? Yes. So we went along with the factory that did do uh, the prototype for us. What I did was work out with the suppliers to logistically ship over the, the supplies needed to put the schlocker together just in time when the injection molds were done producing the units. It was pretty much just a team effort with all the factories coming along to work with the main factory. People have this assumption that they can go to a one-stop shop and here's this ideal product that I want and they go to one manufacturer and say, now quote it for me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely possible that you can't have that done and the, the factory was able to do that for us. But I found out that they were looking to use different suction cups that I wasn't used to. I, or mm-hmm. I want these super strong suction cups, which is the ones that come right now with the Schlocker. Um, they were able to provide the lock for us, but it was double the price. So they didn't have their direct supply or source to the, to the parts that I wanted for the Schlocker. 
No, I appreciate you expanding on this story. That's the path that I'm used to. I've you know worked in industry for 12 years now, and a lot of the companies that I worked for, they build their own products, but they've never had that single source. They've always controlled it the way you guys have for the same reasons. It's just uh, you have more control over your supply chain. Exactly. Have you been able to come up with plan B and C manufacturers in case something were to happen that you've got a backup, or is that not really a concern for you? Yeah, no, it definitely is a concern for me because my father has been through this process in, in the past with other um, clients of his. So I know what it's like through experience. So I did source other suppliers, manufacturers, just in case if something does go wrong and we need to order a lot more in the future. So when you ended up placing your first order, how did you know how big of an order to place? It was according to the container. We knew that we wanted to bring in at least 2,000 units, but the container, a 40 per container, was only able to fit 3,800 units, and we wanted to maximize that and not just bring in half a container. That's why we decided to bring on just around 3,800 units in a full container. Yeah, that's super smart because if you run the quotes and you see how much a half container costs to unload and load, it's really not worth shipping anything less than a container in my opinion. Definitely not. Yeah, it definitely lowers your total landed cost. So did you do any type of pre-sale or anything like that before you went into it? We did a Kickstarter campaign, actually, and that raised the funds for our first order. And then that also brought a lot of exposure to the product. The Kickstarter campaign was successful, and then we continued to run pre-order sales on Indiegogo. And then once we placed the order, we stopped doing the Indiegogo, and we just kind of held out and did a ton of other work on other things that needed to be tied up before the inventory arrived in October. And then we, we fulfilled those Kickstarter orders first. That was our priority and Indiegogo. And then we started opening up our website for sales. That sounds pretty intense. You had some surveys that you threw out with SurveyMonkey and you did in person. Then you, I imagine you created some sort of a pre-order list through that by saying, hey, if you really like this idea, sign up and we'll let you know when it goes live. And then somehow you grew that audience enough to launch your Kickstarter. So you had that base because obviously Kickstarter won't by itself send people to you. You need to somehow funnel that audience, right? Yeah. And something that we kind of didn't realize right away with uh, the crowdfunding stuff, it's very complicated. And there's a lot of big companies that use Kickstarter from what we can tell. And just as a small first time outfit, you need to make sure that people are going there because as soon as you know new Kickstarter campaigns get added to the list, yours goes down to the bottom. It's not seen. It has to be looked for. So we did a huge push with a launch party, just friends and family and really bugging everyone for a month. Every one of our contacts, emails, phone calls, texts, just please share this on Facebook. You know, did some Facebook ads and generated just enough buzz to be able to make our goal. But it was very intense. It was a roller coaster that month. We fulfilled the order about five months after. So we were, we were pretty much on schedule from what we had anticipated. That's amazing. Congrats on being able to do that. I know creating that audience is really difficult, especially now when you've got so many other products competing for people's attention. You know, you have to really find who your target market is and be really focused on how you're advertising to them. I imagine it, you had enough of a pre-launch buzz to where you stayed as the featured Kickstarter. You were able to stay on the front page and continue getting that traffic? No. So um, we made several mistakes with Kickstarter we're happy to talk about because I would hope that it could help someone else. Our picture, I think it's the the product picture, whatever it is that shows on the page there, mm -hmm. it's hugely important. And while we used real images, I guess in hindsight, it looks like it could have been a digitally created image. Mm. We realized about 
a week or two into our campaign that we needed to replace that image with a lifestyle shot. So we put the schlocker like in a shower and with, you know, it was, it was my hand, but a hand opening it so that you had some kind of visualization of how it is as a live product. Um, and that helped immensely. And I wish that we had done that from the onset. So that's something that I would recommend people, you know, make sure that you have the right image and the right title. Don't assume that people are going to know what it is, especially if it's something that's never been created before. But that helped with our traffic. We also use, we reached out to Kickstarter backer clubs. I think it's like backer club, there were a few different ones and you can offer special promotions to these avid Kickstarter backers and they help generate a lot of buzz too through their community. So that was something that we found super helpful. Yeah, like Kickstarter specific influencers. Yes. Correct. Ah, that's interesting. By the way, speaking of images, I love the images on your site, especially the ones that show a whole shower wall tiled with lockers. It's got like six or eight lockers on it. And it really gives you an idea of how this would look in a dorm room or a shared shower space with a lot of people in it. And you've got different colors shown and different angles with the vented and like it's like the images look really great. Did you guys take all those photos yourself? Thank you. Yes, we did. Yep. Startup budget. (laughs) We've learned to do a lot of things on our own. It's actually pretty, pretty fun. Big learning curve, though. We've done photography, videography, graphic design, just (laughs) things really like these different programs that like Photoshop is super tough if you've never used it before. So I've found other programs that help canva.com. I'll plug them. I've just found that to be such a hugely helpful resource and create social media posts of all different kinds. They offer a lot in terms of designing and making things look pretty and professional. Yeah, no, great job guys. Now you've funded through Kickstarter. You've fulfilled your orders. Uh, talk about fulfilling those orders. Did you use a third-party fulfillment company or were you working out of your garage? Uh, working out of a friend's garage. We have a warehouse where we shipped all of the product to initially and we ship product out of there from anything that's sold off our website. And initially on Amazon was shipped out of that warehouse. Um, but recently we switched over to Amazon FBA. So we actually ship multiple products at a time to Amazon's warehouse and they they pick and ship for us. So any orders now through Amazon are handled directly through them. Directly. Mm-hmm. And and that's been hugely helpful. Yeah, definitely if your product is a premium product like yours is, you can certainly afford it. I'm a FBA seller myself. I totally agree with you. I probably spend maybe five hours a week on my Amazon product. And, you know, considering I'm selling 20 units a day, it's it's super helpful, like you said, because if you imagine packing all those boxes yourself, I put you in the weeds. And it looks like you pre-sold about 130 or so lockers, uh, plus whatever you did on Indiegogo. Is that about right? Yep. Mm -hmm. And you had a 3000 unit order. Yeah, just under 4000. That's right. No, that's huge. So you took a big risk then because you were looking at Kickstarter and saying, man, we've got let's say two, 300 orders, you had 10% pre-orders and you thought, you know what, if this is going to happen, I'm just going to, we're going to go all in with this, I guess. Yeah. We basically just made a decision to, it's going to work or it's not going to work and we're going to make sure it works. <laughs> so we, we placed the order based on the um, container size and have just been working it from there and doing kind of just grassroots media, getting into as many publications as we can without utilizing PR well-known podcasts like this one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just any any type of media, any type of exposure we can get, we take full advantage and it always helps. And, you know, we're looking now to focus on physical brick-and-mortar retail space to grow our brand and develop relationships there. 
Yeah, so talk about that because that's normally the path that people take whenever they're creating their product. You usually sell it on your own, either through your own e-commerce site or through Amazon. And then the next step might be to get into some mom and pop type boutique stores that are brick and mortar. And then you usually go into some of these larger box stores. So talk about that strategy a little bit. Yeah, so right now what we're focusing on is getting into college bookstores and also like smaller hardware type of stores in Manhattan are helpful because a lot of college students just go right there. And so we've been developing relationships with them. And basically we are going to try to get the college bookstore market is funny too, because it's a lot of chain stores. A lot of it has buying groups. So you do need to make the higher level relationships happen. So we are going to a, an expo in March a few weeks now, uh, called Camex, and we'll be meeting with a bunch of different college store buyers and distributors there. We've been talking with a college store distributor. We'll be making the relationships at the show and expanding that way. And then longer term, we hope to get into mass retail within this year. You know, that's an interesting angle too, is I wonder if you could go the college licensing route with some of this and have college exclusive doors with, you know, silk screen logo on the bottom corner or whatever that is. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we're totally open to that. I think that we'll make a lot of great contacts at the show too with mm -hmm. the, with licensors and, and people who can make that happen for us. So something we're definitely looking at exploring. Now that's really exciting. I assume people are going to buy college branded mer merchandise way more than even some of the pro you know, NFL, NBA type teams. At least the people here yeah. in Houston seem to be so much more loyal to where they went to college. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone wants to rep their you know, alma mater. I always bought things from my college bookstore with the college name on it. I still have them. You know, people love to just have college merch. So I think it's a perfect fit. As you've gone through this product, have you seen anything that made you say, you know what, I w we'd like to tweak this in a second round? Or are there some updates that you want to make? Or do you feel that you hit the, the ball of the park, so to speak, and you were right on the first go? We definitely want to expand on making the schlocker be able to hang over the shower head. That would mm -hmm. be an, uh, either a modification or a addition as an extra thing that you can buy online to attach to your schlocker because not, not everybody has those big tiles where you can fit those super strong suction cups onto. So it's either that or attaching it onto your shower door, which is hopefully glass. Um, also different sizes, maybe something more compact. I think the size in terms of being large is probably big enough. We haven't heard anyone want it to be bigger. <laughs> yeah, it looks pretty big. <laughs> but smaller might might be something that we would explore. Um, and maybe different shapes, maybe more rounded version, lots of different things that we could look at. Right now, we're definitely intent on selling the inventory we have and continuing to do our market research. We're also looking to solve issues for other shared spaces in a household. So uh, kind of just to tease at that, maybe like the kitchen, people stealing each other's food. That's next on our agenda in terms of product development. So we're really looking to make a whole brand out of this product different products that will solve multiple issues for people. That's really our vision long-term. I really like that. I like what you said about targeting other people in shared spaces, because I think that's one of those niches that people don't talk about at all. And so you could totally own that space. I think at least as a consumer, I don't see a ton of competition in that space. Plus you'd already have an established product that was successful in it. And uh, Tal, to what you were saying about, you know, using something that hangs off the shower head, I think that's a great idea. You could probably even convert the existing suction cup mount areas 
to have like a little press in adapter that, you know, where you have a little hanger. So it's just a little add on part and doesn't really change your product design at all. Exactly. That's what we're working on right now. That's sharp. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. You were talking about different shapes, Stephanie. I was thinking uh, immediately I thought of like the hexagon shapes because they would tile really cool and you could have like an entire wall full of little hexagons. I like that idea. Especially like in an artistic type way if you had like a two-tone hexagon wall. And definitely in the kitchen too, man. I had four roommates in college. We had a four-bedroom apartment and fortunately we were all into different types of food. Mm. Um, so, so we didn't have that much of a problem. But I could definitely see a solution for that. Maybe even something in a cabinet that's like a locked drawer or something that slides out. Yeah, yeah. Like it's a real issue. Like I mean, yeah. people are constantly, who ate my leftovers? Or right. even in an office environment, um, or, or people, again, with children who don't want them to get into certain things. We're finding more and more that these are common issues that people have every day, and there really hasn't been something that solves for them. Like a fridge solution that keeps uh, cans because cans would work for beer and soda. And so you've got like a can dispenser with a lock on it. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. yeah. It's really sky's the limit at this point. We're, we're really looking at a lot of different things. Oh, that's really exciting. It's, it's great to uh, talk to a company that's got this forward vision and how they want to attack the market with these next products. You said later on this year, you'd hopefully like to get into retail. I guess that's going to depend on how this show goes for you. I imagine you're going to make some amazing contacts. I personally love going to shows. Yeah, shows are super helpful. We went to one last year, a different one, um, with just our prototypes, actually, called IHA. It's International Housewives Association in Chicago. It's a huge show, and we were able to exhibit in this section called the Inventors Corner. And it was really great because we got all sorts of perks for being able to um, exhibit there. For one, the booth cost was lower. We were able to go in front of a panel of expert industry experts and they kind of made it like this play on shark tank actually the casting director for shark tank was there um someone from hammocker i I always mess up that hammocker schlemmerker kind of like a sky mall type catalog qvc was there and so we got to present in front of them and they asked us questions and there was an audience and, uh, and the whole nine yards and it was really interesting so we got feedback from them and you know we got preliminary introductions to buyers from these big stores. So it was hugely helpful. So yeah, I would recommend other people with their um, startups could get into a trade show in that regard. It's a big help. Sometimes I think people will fear going into a trade show because there's a bit of an upfront cost. And if they talk to somebody that's gone to a show that didn't prep for the show properly, they will usually say, hey, it's not worth going to shows uh, because they had a negative experience. But I think if you're in the, the right timing... And the right show will make all the difference for that. Any tips for doing either of those, finding the right show and, and timing it properly? Make sure you're going to the right one for your industry. You know, make sure it's big enough. Definitely prep beforehand. We didn't have inventory to sell at that point. We were just before our Kickstarter campaign, actually. Um, but we wanted to go and we wanted some exposure. We wanted some feedback. And during the show, definitely make sure that you're making all the connections you can get and organizing them properly so that you can follow up afterward. I would say that's hugely important. And also make sure you're protected. If your product is brand new, it doesn't exist, make sure before you go to the show, just remember there's many big companies out there that can blow you out of the water. 
So make sure you're, 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 you have a lot of protection, either utility-wise or design-wise with your product. Yeah, we already had um, patents pending at that point, so we felt comfortable going. And we did have some interest from big companies who made similar products. I think we would have been terrified if we didn't have that protection in place. Yeah, I imagine you got that protection in place before you launched your Kickstarter. Is that right? Absolutely. Yep. yep. Uh, so while you were at the show, you mentioned that you did some of these pitches uh, are they like short, like three minute, one minute elevator pitches or were these like longer, like eight, 10 minute investor type pitches? They were pretty short. I think we only had like a couple minutes to present and then the rest of the time was questions and then we would answer and they were questions about similar to like what we're talking about now. It was like a softer, it wasn't so intense. They were just questions about like... Not as intense as my interview here. <laughs> uh, sorry, not as intense as like Shark Tank, I mean. Fair enough. So they weren't, you know, trying to rip you apart. They were basically just trying to dig for how you've gone about the process and competition, competition, and pricing, market, yeah, branding, designing. It was like a lot of fun. How yeah, we, how mm -hmm. we came this far with the product. Well, since you guys have had a little bit of time to practice, I wonder if I could put you on the spot. Could you give me a thirty-second or one-minute elevator pitch about your product? Sure. So the shower locker, the locker is a shower locker, which is designed for anyone who shares a bathroom with other people. Think families, roommates, college students. They want to be able to leave their things in the shower and make sure that they're not used by others. That's great. That's simple and to the point and something that people understand. And I like how you didn't really get into the technical details of the product because that's not as relevant as the direct benefit of using it. Yeah. Yep, exactly. So now that you've ramped up and it looks like you're moving into a lot of different directions, it must be a bit hard to stay on top of it all. Have you been able to hire anybody to help or is it still just the two of you? As of right now, it's just the two of us. And we do have, we actually have a national sales manager. He is commission based, which is great. We actually found him because we were going to these college bookstores and talking to the owners. And I, I asked like, do you use a distributor? Do you have sales reps? That sort of thing. And so they pointed us to him. And so he's been in the industry for a long time. He's been a buyer. He's been a salesperson. And so he's got the right connections and we're super excited to bring him on board. And, and you know, he's working basically for free at this point. And he just believes in the product a lot. He really sees the vision with us. And so we're super excited to see where that's going to lead. But in terms of the day-to-day, -day, it's just the two of us. We're still working our full-time jobs plugging away nights, weekends, fully devoted to this company. That's great vision and, and dedication to that. And I don't know if you, it's possible for you to share, because I know you're only using one outsourced person, but can you give people an indicator of about what percent of costs go to creating the unit versus you know selling it versus maybe to distributors and, and other fees? Usually the what I tell people is plan for at least 25% of the sales price going into the landed cost of your product. And it's going to be even less than that if you've got middle people in between, like distributors like to take usually 5 to 10% depending. And then if you've got a retailer involved, they definitely want like almost 50% of the retail price. Would you say that's in the ballpark or have you seen something different? Yeah, I mean, you have to make sure that you that your cost, your landed cost allows for and your, and your MSRP allows for enough for everyone to get a little bit in the middle. Um, so whatever you put your MSRP at, you have to make sure that you've got enough profit to allow for distributor relationships and also retailers. And then also, like you mentioned, all the other costs, like a commissioned salesperson, all of the advertising, the marketing, it adds up quick. So you have to make sure that you're not giving your product away. You have to make sure that your costs are fully calculated. 
but yeah, I would say like right now we're, we're healthy. We want to, of course, reduce our costs in the future in terms of our landed costs. But uh, right now we, we have been able to get by on our profits. I think that's one of the greater challenges that a product-based startup faces early on is that you don't have that scale to work with that larger companies do. And so you have tend to have a little bit tighter margins that some of your competitors have. But on the flip side, your advantages are that you're moving so quickly now. You can make changes to your design lightning speed compared to some of the other people on the market. And so if you're really tapped into that audience, you're going to be able to turn around and and give people what they need much faster than anybody else. Yep, absolutely. Uh, So right now, like our biggest thing is we just need exposure. That's We just need to get out there. We need to continue getting feedback and continue trying to Make sure that we have the first, you know, shower locker in the market. Yeah, first shower locker in the market for other companies start getting keen on the idea. I think it just takes you getting into a couple larger colleges and universities for that to kind of spread virally. You know, you've got people that spend the weekend over at their friend's college and they're like, wow, that's pretty cool. Where'd you get that from? And that I think would just be huge growth for you. Yeah, word of mouth is huge. Um, Our Amazon reviews, once that started taking off, once people were leaving great reviews, that helped so much. Um, so yeah, we've, we've had people order it and then reach out to us be like, Oh, I heard of this through so-and-so or my friend got one. And it really is. It spreads like wildfire. That's, that's amazing. We're listening to you guys talk. It seems it was smooth sailing the entire way through. There were no hiccups, (laughs) no hiccups, no issues. It seems like you knew what to do every step of the way. Can you share any stumbling blocks or anything that kind of happened along the way that you thought, no, maybe we would do that a little bit differently this time. Oh, for sure. I think with a lot of things, it's a constant learning curve. I mean, I've been in sales for product, consumer goods, but I've never been involved with such nitty gritty details of developing a product and bringing it to market. So there's just so much of so much knee skinning all along. Um, I mentioned earlier our you know hindsight things that we saw with Kickstarter, and and we can expand on that too. I think we spent some money with PR, which ended up not being maybe worth the the amount that we spent, just because. We got some exposure, but it wasn't necessarily in the with the right audience. Mm -hmm. So that's something we wouldn't have done again. I think that we realized that there are other ways of getting exposure. What else would you say? (laughs) As as of right now, I mean, the product itself is superb, and the uh, the manufacturing is great. So nothing on my end. Well, yeah, (laughs) towel side is perfect. No, that's funny. But, you know, you, you have an interesting point about the PR. You know, some of the guests that we've had on the show said the same thing, that that organic reach that they've had by uh, creating special interest type articles where they do guest posts and appear on shows and things like that. That's been way more beneficial to them than even the paid traffic, just for the same reasons that you said. A lot of times that larger publication, the audience is not as focused. It's not as refined and you end up wasting a lot of that reach on people that wouldn't be your customer anyway. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, we've found um, it's it's been really uh, cool to work with different bloggers, uh, college college focused bloggers, um, podcasts such as yourself. We've connected with. I'm not sure where you're based. We're in Long Island, New York, and there's a really cool resource here for inventors. Um, this guy named Brian Freed heads this whole inventors network of Long Island, mm-hmm. um, and it's basically networking events once a month and people come together and share ideas and tips and everyone is really supportive and we made you know a lot of good contacts there and he was able to get us on to a new york morning show um completely free just 
showed our product on TV. So there's lots of different things that you can find to get exposure without going to a traditional PR firm. Yeah. And and since you mentioned that you got some exposure on morning TV, some of the people that have been on the show said that they expected way more traffic from some of the uh, publications than they really got. For example, a really large publication with 200,000 visits a month or something like that didn't yield the number of sales that maybe a tiny blogger would that had a really focused audience. Would you say that's still true? Yeah, we were able to get on BuzzFeed, which was, you know, a big publication, but also specific to our demographic, our market. And so that did a lot of traffic for us. We got a lot of sales from just the one feature on BuzzFeed. So I think it, it, like you said, it really depends on if a publication is focused on your niche, on on your market. Luckily, BuzzFeed for us is big and focused. So that helped. Great. While we wrap up the show here, I tend to ask, is there one tip that you'd like to give people that are going through the same process as you? Maybe they're still at the prototyping stage where they haven't even created a Kickstarter yet and you know they're just struggling a little bit. What would you tell them to keep going or keep pushing forward? Yeah, I mean, it's a constant. Um, you have to constantly set new goals. And I think the way that we've been able to persevere is luckily we have each other to be a support team. And I know a lot of people are going at this alone, but just keep the bigger picture in mind. You've got that one big picture goal to focus on. And if you break it down into smaller, more tangible goals, you know, weekly, monthly milestones that you want to hit, eventually things start to materialize and they start to happen. And you end up, you know, in a place where you finally have the product and you're selling it. And even then there's more goals that you need to hit, but it's, it's a process and just, you know, Stay focused, stay positive, and keep creating small goals for yourself. And and my suggestion would be to definitely learn to take a break from work because if you're too much, you know, have your head in, into your uh, idea and, and your business too much, then you kind of lose focus. So kind of, you know, spending some time with your family, friends, and going out and just getting your head clear at least once a week is definitely something I would give advice to. A great suggestions, okay. both of you. And Tal, I can definitely relate to that. I'm one of those people that will like go into a cave and just continue working and family won't see me at all for a while just because I really want to, I'm so passionate about working out that problem and I like forget to eat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks again for, for coming on the show, guys. You're hugely transparent and helpful. Tell where people can go and buy the Schlocker and where they can keep in touch with you guys on, on some of the new products that you've got coming out. Sure. The Schlocker can be purchased at schlocker.com. That's the combination of the word shower locker. So S-H- L-O-C-K-E-R.com. Or they can go on Amazon and type in Schlocker or Shower Locker and find it that way. Our social media, we tend to have a lot of fun with, and I would love for your fans to interact with us that way. Our Instagram page is at The Schlocker, as well as our Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. They're all the same, at The Schlocker. Perfect. Well, thanks a lot, guys. Sounds good. Okay, Thank you so do. much, Philip. I really appreciate it. I hope that you took away some great points about validating your market, sourcing, manufacturing, and launching from Stephanie and Tal. So here are my three takeaways this week. Number one, source components individually. If you want to maximize control and lower your unit costs as much as possible, it's your benefit to source components that are the best fit for your, your design. If your manufacturer is not used to working with products in your industry, they may not even have the best contacts. Number two, using images that people instantly understand. Make sure your audience is able to see how your product both looks and functions from the main image so customers can get what your product does quickly. Lifestyle shots showing your product in use also add credibility. Doing what you can yourself. 
I really enjoyed Stephanie and Tal talking about how they took their own photography and learned easy-to-use tools to do their graphic design for their social media posts. DIY product development is what I talk about here on the show, and I really think that taking on tasks yourself is the best way to maximize your launch budget. If you'd like to get these takeaways in your inbox every week, just go to theproductstartup.com, scroll to the footer of any page, and sign up to the weekly wrap-up. Join me next time as I speak with Christopher and Charisse with C2 Group. We talk about some of the financial, legal, and HR traps of buying and selling small businesses. So make sure to tune in next week to hear that episode. Once again, thank you for taking part in the annual audience survey. Without input from listeners and readers just like you, I'm creating content in the dark. Engagement from podcasting is notoriously low. It's actually about 1%, since people are usually listening while they're driving to and from work or working out at the gym. So your support makes the product startup possible, and I thank you for listening to the show and reading the site. So go to theproductstartup.com and click enter now to get started. Thanks again for joining me today, and I hope that you're taking action on your products, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.